Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. We have a special bonus episode this week, and I don't think anyone was anticipating this. It's a previously unannounced meeting of the Classic Horse Club, and we have a very special guest, Justin Humphreys, author of The Dr. Five Companion, which has just been nominated for a Ronda Award this year, the category Book of the Year, a very tough category, but I'm pulling for this one. I just love it. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on the book. This isn't your first Ronda nomination, though, is it? No, I think it's about, it's my fifth or sixth at this point. Um, I've gotten a bunch of nominations for articles and uh, for one of my previous books, Interviews Too Shocking to Print, which is a collection of horror-related interviews. Um, but but yeah, no, I'm I'm really jazzed about it. You know, I have to be honest with you. When when I first published the book, I had no idea uh, that. It was going to take off. I had no idea. I mean, I thought I felt like it was going to bomb or something. I had no idea there were so many people out there that loved the Fives movies as much as I do. Well, well I think I'm when, one you, of when them, you're talking, one of my all-time yeah. favorites. It's my favorite Vincent Price movie. Uh, Richard just, uh, well, just a year ago was married, and he's been introducing his wife Carla to a lot of the horror films that we watched for the podcast, and they watched both movies last night. So, uh, Rich, what did Carla think of them? Well, it had been a while since I'd seen either one, and I wanted to watch them to prepare for this interview. And, yeah, I, Carla loves Vincent Price, so that wasn't a hard sell at all. Um, she loved it. She uh, she loved both movies uh, almost equally, which I wasn't, you know, it had been a while since I'd seen the second. I know it's, you know, not as good as the first. You know, it's got some issues. But um, I was actually surprised, too, at for some reason, you know, I, I enjoyed the second one a lot more than I remembered. And um, there was a few. <clears throat> she's she struggles sometimes with the uh, science around movies. She's she's a very scientific brain, so sometimes the the concept things like um, embalming somebody and then coming back in the next movie <laughs> that's that's a bit of a stretch for her. And and she kind of you know always kind of winces at things like that. And it really bothered her how. Uh, Olivia comes back in the second film after being, you know, dipped in acid in the first film. But uh, that aside, it was a lot of fun. It was, that was a fun double feature to do on a Saturday night. And I think any any time you can spend a, a Saturday night doing a Vincent Price double feature, it's uh, that's a pretty darn good Saturday night in my book. No, I quite I quite agree. And I have to say, um, I, this is kind of a roundabout way of of getting into this topic, but. Um, you know, I, I got a big kick uh, when that movie, The Big Sick, uh, a couple of years ago, had a scene where Kumal Nanjiani is kind of testing his date by showing her the Abominable Doctor vibes. And I've that's been it's been a real litmus test with for me with girlfriends over the years. It's like if they if they like certain movies, they're keepers. And if they don't, it's like they're, you know, it's like uh, off to the cornfield. But the um, the thing about Fives is that's one that's it's a huge crowd pleaser for men and women alike. Um, it's 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 held up so well. Uh, it's extremely witty. It's visually stunning. Um, the jokes all work. Uh, I've seen it about five or six times in theaters now with people. And, uh, as I said, it works. Like, the, it hits all the notes it's supposed to hit. It hits. Um, the thing about the second, just to digress about the, um, the second fives, the problem with it is they cut, I think, I'm not sure exactly how much footage was cut from it, but I think it was somewhere around like five or ten minutes. Um, so there's all these weird, there's jumpiness. Um, a, American International was really bad about that. In the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, they recut 
Oh God, Bloody Mama, Wuthering Heights, um, all these movies. And then they would add in narration to sort of patch it over. So you'll see all of a sudden Dr. Vibes without his neck jack in place is just speaking. And um, it's very jarring. But uh, but the second one, I think that the sets in the second one and the score are just absolutely stunning. It has a lot of other virtues, but I think that's where it really excels. Like the, I love I love the the Art Deco layer in in the uh, the heart of the uh, the mountains. You know, in, in Egypt, it's just wonderful. I thought the same thing. I actually rewatched that last part this morning, and I, I thought that's just an amazing set piece for. You know, you just wouldn't get that. And, and I mean, admittedly, a Vincent Price film in the early 70s from AIP wasn't necessarily A-level entertainment, right? It, it wasn't this big blockbuster from Universal or Warner Brothers or MGM. And so, you know, a, a B-level horror film released today wouldn't do that. And if it did, it would be some type of CGI background that generally isn't going to look nearly as good. That's why I love watching older films, because even even the B films would oftentimes have these amazing set pieces that you know it's not a, a computer generated graphic. It's it's a real set that that they built, and it, it can enhance even even a movie that may have some some big plot holes or may have some deficiencies. It can enhance a movie and just make it. Visual eye candy. I mean, just, that's, I, I loved watching that. I, you know, again this morning, it was a lot of fun. Well, I think, this no, I think comedy of the movie, and that's funny because growing up as a kid and watching it, you know, I didn't think it was funny at all. And even as I grew up and I, I hear more about the humor of it and the campiness of it, I still kind of resisted that. But uh, when I watched it again recently, I'm sort of embracing that now. And I think maybe that's something that just kind of comes with age and an appreciation, uh, you know, for what it really is. I think I was, when I was a kid, I was really deep into um, British comedy. I mean, I, my family would always, we'd watch the young ones, Monty Python, the comic strip, this really absurdist British comedy. And um, there's a whole streak of that, and it was it was big around around the time that um, that Bob Buse did uh, the Fives movies, and um, I I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was kind of I had a kind of Anglophilia to begin with, so it was an easy sell. When I first saw Fives, I was ten, um, and it came on. What was it Grandpa's Monster Movies? It was the uh, uh, Al Lewis, uh, Grandpa oh, yeah. Monster. Yeah, he would host up on TBS. He would host a monster movie every week. And Super, it was the Super first Scary time I Saturday, was... Saturday, I think, is what it was called. Super Scary Saturday, that's it. Yeah, 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 that's it, exactly. Grandpa's Monster, movie, monster Movies was a... Um, that was a, a video he did, a separate video of, I think, trailers. But yes, this is... Yeah, Super Scary Saturday, exactly. That's where I first saw it. And I had only seen a couple of um, of images from it in books. I mean, if you see random images from Dr. Fives with very little explanation... It's even weirder than the actual film. And I mean, you know, I don't need to tell you, like, one of the best parts of the movie is it has this kind of uncompromising commitment to weirdness. Um, but to see those images out of context was even stranger. But I saw it, and for whatever, I'm like nine or ten or whatever, and I'm looking at it going, why is everybody driving all these old cars? It didn't really register with me that it was set in, for whatever reason, set in, you know, 19, 1925. And, um, so I saw it, I loved it, flipped over it, thought it was just fantastic. And I didn't see it again for about three years. And when I saw it again, it was like, it was just, I mean, I was absolutely flabbergasted. I thought it was one of the greatest things I'd ever seen. It become, became became one of my absolute favorite movies. And um, I think one of the things, when we talk about the sets, um, you know, I think Bob Fused and and Brian Eatwell, his production designer, deserve a lot of credit for that movie's success. A lot of credit. And Bob also heavily rewrote the script. Um, he uh, a lot of the humor in that film. I'd say most of the humor in the finished movie is Bob's. Um, he had uh, I got to know Bob in his last years, and he was he was just a great guy, really funny, wacky, and a, and a very in a really kind of wonderful way sort of guy. Um, but that humor you talk about, it's like, it's it's totally Bob. And you can see it in other movies of his, like 
the final program and just like a woman and, and things like that. But it's like you'd call up Bob and say, um, like, hey, Bob, what are you up to? And he'd go, hatching a fiendish plot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was like, you could, it was like, yes, this is the guy that did Dr. Fives, obviously. Um, but Bob and Bob and Brian had been um, had both been art directors. And it's an it's really in a lot of ways an art director's movie. Um, uh, they were able to to really make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Uh, they were used to having minimal funds to deal with uh, from working on different TV series, particularly the Avengers. You know, the Avengers with um, Pat- Patrick McNee and uh, Diana Rigg, and they had been part of the creative force behind that, along with Brian Clemens. And um, so on the Avengers, they would they would be stuck doing things like, okay, how do you show a bakery? Uh, how do you build a bakery set when there's almost nothing to build it with? So they would set you know, a couple of shelves right in front of the camera in the foreground with maybe five loaves of bread. And then they would shoot the characters through the shelves and the loaves of bread. So you get the impression of a lot more shelves of bread and a, and a, and a whole bread shop, if you, if you get my meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, and this is how they learned to work. Now, the incredible thing about Fives is they made that movie for somewhere around, for something like $500,000, the first film. I mean, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. Um, the uh, Fives lair, for instance, you know, his, his big ballroom. It's almost like theatrical flat, you know, um, oh, but yeah. they give you this, Im- they give you this impression of all these other rooms with those curtains that are hung along the side. So you keep thinking, okay, behind each of those sets of curtains is a separate room and you'll go into maybe one or two of them in the movie and that's all you need. And it gives you an impression of much, much, much more than is there. Um, now you're talking about AIP movies in the early Vincent Price AIP movies in the early 70s. You know that whole sort of gothic uh, thread of films he'd done for AIP that had been so good and so successful were really running out of steam by that point. I mean, um, you know, the Oblong Box and Cry of the Banshee are they're kind of they're tough going. I mean, I love Vincent Price, but those are those are like some of my very very least favorite. Um, uh, uh, price movies, but but I think Bob Bob Fuse really he injected this this note of freshness. I mean, he 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 totally refreshed uh, Price's horror films by throwing everything in the opposite direction. You know, instead of a kind of cobweb shrouded uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe uh, decrepit castle on a on a cliff, he has this shining, elegant, gorgeous Art Deco, Art Nouveau ballroom, you know. Um, he threw everything in the opposite direction, and, um, and I think it works absolutely beautifully. Um, uh, there's, there's, so much to, there's so much to say about the look of those films. And also, he had a great uh, director of photography, Norman Warwick, who had a really, really kind of good sense, kind of painterly sense of light. Um, he was what they used to, in the British film industry, they called them lighting cameramen because they, they really, really learned lighting. Um, and uh, he shot some other very good-looking horror movies like The Creeping Flesh and Tales from the Crypt and things like that. I want to circle back to a couple things you said. Um, the writers. So William Goldstein was – how involved was he? It was his story, his concept. Did he write a draft of the screenplay? Oh, absolutely. No, here's, here's the story. Okay, I'll tell you the whole story of the screenplay. Um, it originated, uh, with two writers, uh, Bill Goldstein and, um, Jim Whiten, who were friends from Troy, New York. And, uh, they had written, a, they wrote a 17 page treatment called The Fingers of Dr. Pibe, which is like wildly different from the scripts that they wrote after that, um, where uh, Dr. Pibe uh, creates, what is it, he takes balloons full of irradiated seeds and has them burst over his victims and he kills them. It's, it's, it's very strange, but there's there are a certain number of ideas from it 
that made it through every subsequent draft. There's, I think, um, mechanical musicians, and there's a female assistant, and there's all this other stuff. But they wrote another script called um, the, was it the Curses, the Curses of Doctor Pibe, not Fibes, Pibe, and um, a lot of the ideas that are in the finished film are there, and the kind of basic structure is there with the the guitar, with the the um, the plague structure and all that. Um, and but it was it was serious, and there were a lot of differences, and the ending was different, and um, there were a lot of things that got dropped. Uh, like I think there's a scene in um, I think there's a scene in uh, the Chamber of Horrors in in London, but it's um, it's just it just it didn't quite work as a serious story, and there were there were there were parts of it which that were just needed ironing out. Um, so the, the, they deserve a lot of the credit for the you know the structure of the thing and everything, but um, but Bob really he heavily rewrote it, and um, as I said, a lot of the humor is from him. Um, and Brian Clemens, uh, who also who worked with Bob on and soon the darkness and, and the Avengers, um, and who also made Captain Chrono's vampire hunter and, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and sister Hyde and things like that. And who wrote golden voyage of Sinbad, the Ray Harryhausen movie. Um, Brian and Bob were sitting around talking at Elstree and and Bob was saying, Oh, you know, I can't get this this ending to work. And it was Brian Clemens that came up with um the idea of the the operating theater and the key and, and all of that and the surgery and the acid. And um and Bob said, you know, can I I'd like to put you in the credits for this or get you paid or something like that. And then Brian was just like, no, no, just, you know, that's it's a favor. Enjoy. You know, he was it was very cool of him. And um, I think technically the script, I mean, if if they had, if it wasn't an international production and it wasn't AIP or whatever, I mean, technically the, the screenplay credit should read screenplay by William, William Hillstein, James White, and Robert Houston and Brian Clemens. Um, but uh, but it's, um, and it's very interesting. I recommend reading the earlier drafts, and you'll see how different it is. Um, but... But yeah, Bob Fuse just—he was this wonderfully, wildly, insanely inventive guy, and I think all of the best attributes of his movies kind of all coalesced in Doctor Fives. I know he—he he loved the movie. He was—he was very proud of it. I was amazed to see that he had uh, directed The Devil's Reign. Just yeah, you know, I—I I, it was—it was funny. I um, Dan Roebuck. Uh, it's a, a character actor out here is an old friend of mine and uh who's a, a a huge monster movie horror movie not like like us he um we were talking about devil's rain one time and he goes you know he goes i love that movie for no particular reason and um and i do too i i love devil's rain i have a real soft spot for that movie um the now thing about devil's rain is a kid yeah i i remember the trailer would pop up on TV, and my mom would have to change the channel on the TV as a kid. You know, at the time, and it had, and it had, and it had the co- and it had the coolest video box cover. I mean, yeah, what eight-year-old? Oh my God, with Ernest Borgnine melting and everything, it's like they're totally letting the cat out of the bag on that cover. It's like you know where it's going, but I mean, it's uh, what eight-year-old? Looking at that video box in a video store would not want to see that movie. Um, well, Bob, that's an, it's an interesting story. Bob, um, he just took that as a kind of, it's just as a sort of bills paying movie. And, but they cut the, they cut the shooting schedule by, I think, like two weeks. So he was worked like an absolute sled dog on that. And I think, and I don't think he had, as far as I know, he didn't have a hand, much of a hand in cutting it. So it moved, the rhythm of it's very strange, um, and I think if he had he had had a tighter tighter rein on it, I think it, it, um, it would have turned out differently. But that movie, um, it's it's a quintessential seventies drive-in horror movie, and if you like those things, it's like catnip. Well, you know, it's, it's got a, such it's a crazy cast to it too. I mean, you look at just you incredible know, person cast, yeah. person, yeah, an incredible cast, and and you think mid seventies, yeah, William Shatner was certainly not. He was well past his Star Trek days, and he was 
hadn't quite got that toupee down, Pat, by 1975. So he's, he's no, he, he was doing. Yeah, and he was doing that. He was doing those like William Grisey movies in Florida, like Impulse, and he was doing Bacardi Rum commercials for William Grisey, and it was it was before Pray for the Wildcats, and when he kind of got out of the doghouse. But um, and the other thing is like you can sort of tell it's funny because Bob loved he enjoyed talking about it. He had a good sense. You know, some people do movies like some directors do movies like that, and they're bitter and they're sour about it, and they look down their nose at it. But Bob used to he'd joke about it and talk about it and. He said um, he loved, and this is something I heard from a lot of people that worked with Ernest Borgnine. He loved Ernest Borgnine. He said he was the best. And he said every morning Borgnine would come in all chipper, you know, good morning, governor. You know, he said he was just really, just a great, great guy. And and he said he felt terrible. He goes, he goes you know, I, he's like, I was working so fast on that film. You know, I so wanted to just stop and say, Ernie, you were so good in Marty. I loved you in Marty. It was such a great film, you know. But he never got the chance to. Um, so years later, a friend of mine was doing a signing um, alongside Borgnon, and I said, you tell him what Bob Hughes said. You tell him how much you loved working with him. And and so he did. But, um, but And Borgnon's committed to it. I mean, he's really committed to that role. Like, he's really – it's – you're looking at it and you're like, this is why this guy's career lasted, you know, over 50 years. He's he never giving in a performance. Yeah, he, he, no matter how, you know, maybe low bottom, like Deadly Blessing in 81, no matter how low end the film may be, he was always. Yeah, he's going to, he's going to, he's, he's, yeah, he's going to give an, he's going to give an A picture performance and a B picture. And, but meanwhile, you have Shatner who's just phoning the fucking thing in from Acapulco. It's like he's just there's this there's this line in that movie there's a line in it that just it kills me it kills me it's like one of the best Shatner moments ever is where there's the flashback you know to um, this what is it the uh, the Pilgrim days and you have um, the 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 coven the satanic coven found out and Borgnine goes he goes because Martin Spice thy wife Aranessa has betrayed us. And and uh, Shatner goes, it's literally like it's it's this big dramatic moment. He goes, it's not my fault. It's just like <laughs> you know, literally like who ate the last piece of chicken? Like that's like what he's responding to, you know. And you can tell he's like, you can tell he's like, look, it's like all he's got in his mind is the craft service table and going home. You know, he's just he's so not into it. You know, you think that Ernst Borgnine never phoning in the performance. I think Vincent Price is the same way. I'm not sure that I've ever seen a film that he's in in which he doesn't really look like he's enjoying it to some level. Now, he did some some low-end films like House of a Thousand Dolls where he doesn't have a huge part in it, you know. But oh, yeah. I always get the impression that he, you know, he was always – you know, enjoying whatever he was doing. Because, I mean, he didn't have to to do a lot of what he did. Kind of like Boris Karloff, right? Karloff didn't have to do a lot of the movies he did, and yet he continued to act simply because he enjoyed it. He didn't... Yeah, he liked to work. And, and yeah. well, and the extraordinary thing is, I mean, I, um, I have very mixed feelings about actors in general, you know, um, because so... Uh, so many of them are, are just they're extraordinary people. They're great at what they do, um, and they're they're just a delight to watch. Uh, I'd say Carlos and Bryce are, are way up there. Um, but so many of them are like lazy, demented children, you know. And <laughs> they're you hear you hear about their lives, you hear about their their horrible work ethic, you hear about the the, the grief they give their coworkers, and it makes for me that makes it hard hard to watch because. Then you hear about these absolutely magnificent actors like Karloff, like Price, or like Robert Ryan or Jason Robards or people like that, and you hear nothing but glowing things about them from their coworkers. They were easy to work with. They always showed up on time. They always knew their line, and they deliver these phenomenal performances. And it's like I then I look at somebody like Mickey Rourke, and I'm just like. Why would I want to watch this creep? Like, I don't like him as an actor. He's a, like, I, I hear all these stories about him being a total asshole to everybody he works with. And, um, it's like, and he doesn't even make movies I give a shit about. You know, it's like, and meanwhile, you have on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum people like Price and Karloff. Um, and they're magnificent and their movies have worn so well. Um, 
the uh, but I, I think with fives, you know, uh, Price is obviously enjoying every second of it. And whenever he would light up, whenever he talked about Fuse in those movies and interviews, because they weren't hugely demanding movies, they shot them, and I, I think they were shot in about five weeks each. And um, he was working with a lot of really good actors, and a lot of what he did is alone or virtually alone. You know, he doesn't have a lot of interaction with the rest of the cast, really. Um, but uh, but you can tell he's having a great time. He's having a wonderful time. Um, and little things he added uh, really make that performance shine. Like, there's the part in, in the first vibes where Terry Thomas has, um, he's had his blood drained, and there's there's all the bottles of blood along the the mantle, and um, there's all the paintings on the wall, and Price does this, like, he does this walkthrough as he's leaving, and he picks up the, the snifter of brandy or whatever it is, or wine, and he kind of sniffs that and sort of gives, gives Terry Thomas this disapproving look, like, ugh, you know, like, ugh, what do you do? And then he, as he's walking out, he dips his head back, and he looks over the artwork of all these naked women on the wall, and he gives, he cocks his head and gives... Terry Thomas's corpse, this look like you filthy old lech, like you old perv. And it's fucking hilarious. It's just this beautiful, it's all silent and it's all with physicality and it's his eyes. And, and, and the, the great thing is, again, having seen that movie with audiences so many times and having shown it to so many people, that audience reads so well, you know, even today. I mean, the, the, the movie is almost 50 years old. Oh, I'd That's love to see it on the big screen. I think that'd be great. Well, it's obviously it's obvious you're an expert on Fives and a Monster Kid. I, I want to be sure we talk about the book. So, how did that come into being? Well, here's what happened. Um, I write books or, or articles that I want to read. They're they're things that I haven't seen someone else write. Mm-hmm. There, it's information I want to find out and I want to impart to people because I feel like it's a kind of glaring gap. Um, so as I said, from the time I was like in my early teens, I was a huge, huge five cent, huge. And I couldn't find virtually any information on it. Okay. Yeah. It's directed by Robert Fuse and he did the Avengers. Okay, great. And I, there were interviews with Vincent Price about it, but it was whenever people wrote about it, it was always built around Vincent Price, which is great. I mean, he's fantastic. I love the guy. I idolize him. He's wonderful in it. But I kept asking, okay, who are William Goldstein and James Whiten? I don't see their names on any other credits. Who are these guys? Where are they from? How did they come up with this amazing film? Um, and I want to know more about Robert Fuse. I want to know more about this Brian Eatwell. And uh, I want to know more about all of these people that, that, that contributed to it that just seem to have vanished or they, there's not enough being written about them. So um, over time, I would just every time I would sort of see I would see something about Fives or something about uh, any of those people. I'd sort of make mental notes about it, or I'd you know if I saw an article, I'd Xerox it or whatever, and just sort of like sort of the stuff sort of piled up and piled up. And um, and I would notice Brian Eatwell's name on movies like Lindsay Anderson's If or Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout and Man Who Fell to Earth, and I would take note and be like, okay, there's something to these people. I was like, what is, what's, tell me more about these people. Because they're, like, Ryan Eatwell was not the kind of person that you would see in a pre-internet uh, reference book on film. Mm-hmm. You, you, if you were lucky, you'd see his name mentioned and, and some credits. And I don't need to tell you what it was like in the pre-internet era, accumulating <laughs> information on this stuff. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was horrible. It's like, you know, um, but, uh, but anyway, <clears throat> So about maybe like eight or nine years ago, I kept thinking, you know, I should probably do an article on fives. I should really do an article on fives. And um, I was, I think I had already started a piece on Brian Ewell. And I'd gotten to know his widow and I'd gotten to know Bob Fust. And Bob and I got along really, really well. I just, I absolutely adored him. Um, he was a really, really sweet and very encouraging guy. Like he was just a, just a, just a great person. Of course, I mean, I adored his film. So, um, to, to find out he was such a lovely person was, uh, a, a huge bonus. Um, and eventually Bob gave me his, uh, annotated shooting script 
to Dr. Fives because he knew I'd love it. I mean, and uh, he wrote this beautiful inscription in it uh, where he said, um, he's like, for for my dear friend, my dear friend Justin Humphreys, here is my script to Dr. Fives, which I would like you to have, and then in parenthesis, and I'm sure Dr. Fives would too. (laughs) That's awesome. And, And the thing was, and what made it even, the gesture even kind of more gracious was um, it was not long after my dad had died. It was a terrible, terrible year. Um, my dad had passed away, and it was a, and I had uh, a film professor friend of mine had committed suicide not long before my dad did. And it was just it was one of those years where tragedies are kind of compounded one after the other. And and Bob was so warm and so supportive, and you know he would he would talk about our dads and stuff, and he was he was a really a really caring friend, but he sent me that not long after it. And it was like this, this huge bright spot in a really dismal time. So, um, it was, it was very, very special. Um, but, um, but to, to back to the, why I wrote about it, um, little shop of horrors magazine, I had heard was doing a Dr. Fives issue. So I talked to Dick Clemenson, the editor, and, uh, I said, would you like me to do a piece on it? And, so we talked about it, and I said, yeah, sure. So so that really got things rolling. That was really the catalyst. And and I realized, among other things, I'd, I'd gotten to know, I think that was when I first reached out to William Goldstein. I think that was when Bill and I first talked. But um, I discovered James Whiten was still alive. Hmm. And he was living almost like a hermit in, uh, in Troy, New York. And... Um, Jim, I mean, I, all I'll say is he had a drinking problem, and I'll leave it at that. Um, and, and he could be very, very difficult. But uh, he did come through with photos for the piece and um, with a copy of the, the Fingers of Dr. Pibe and all of this other really fascinating information. And no one had interviewed him about Fibes in, I mean, I, I think I, I might have seen one other interview and one other uh, article where someone actually spoke to him about it, you know. And so, uh, no, I mean, nobody had done an article about Dr. Fives that I had seen where they even ran photos of, of Bill and Jim or Brian Eatwell or any of these people that had contributed so much to it. And that, that was what I really wanted to get across. So um, as I dug deeper, I kept finding out all of these weird wrinkles on the, the, the story of the creation of the thing. And I won't go into too much about it because I want people to buy the book, goddammit. <laughs> um, um, but, uh, for instance, there was a, there was a, there's a character in the movie, Dr. Kitai. And I was familiar with the work of a, a really brilliant Amer- American artist named uh, Ron Kitai, R.B. Kitai. And, and I asked Bill, I said, was was he named after Ron Kitai? And he goes, yeah, he was an old dude, with a ch- like a school school chum of mine from Troy, New York. They had known each other. He and Jim Whiten and uh, Kitai had known each other since like, oh my God, uh, Jesus, it must have been the, the 40s or so. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and you'll occasionally see references to Whiten in books on, on Kitai. But so that was kind of a tribute to him. But actually, it turned out not only was that character named after Ron Kitai, or he was he was actually named after uh, Ron's son. Uh, Ron Kitai's son uh, is his his real his birth name is uh, Anton Lemuel Kitai. So you have Anton Vibes named after him. You have Lem Vesalius named after him, and you have Dr. Kitai named after him. Hmm. And in an interesting side note, uh, under the pen name Len Dobbs, Anton Lemuel Kitai has written movies like Dark City, The Limey, Kafka, uh, and he's actually, I think, working on another one with Steven Soderbergh right now. Um, He's out here in L.A., uh, and interestingly, when his dad was in London, Lem got to watch Vincent Price film a scene from Theater of Blood. So you've got Dr. Five's namesake watching Vincent Price filming Theater of Blood. So there were all these things. No one had written about this stuff. 
You know, I mean, the bottom line is, um, I don't mean to be egotistical here. I'm just, I just mean to be frank. A lot of researchers are just lazy. They're just lazy. They won't go to archives. They won't talk to primary sources. Uh, they don't question stories that are kind of debatable. Um, they don't, they don't qualify things. They just want to make a, you know, an easy, interesting uh, story and they don't really want to go into it. So you see a lot of half truths repeated and you see a lot of really poorly researched writing. And, um, and I did, I just wanted to make sure mine was. Yeah, I think it's important in what you're doing because these resources aren't always going to be with us, right? And, and once these people are gone, then that part of film history is gone. And then all we have left is, is the half truths and, and the, the stories that you say that weren't really researched to get past from what And guessing. Them. Yeah. And people just, people just guessing. Like, I mean, one rumor that I just, I, it's an, I've, I've really come to, and I'm, I'm going to probably alienate a certain amount of the, the public here, but I mean, I've got, Anton LaVey just annoys the, I was about to say annoys the living hell out of me, but that's, that's a terrible pun. Um, <laughs> Anton, Anton LaVey, of course, was a, was a pathological liar. And he told some, some poor, um, some, uh, uh, character that he had been on the set of Dr. Fives and he was the basis of Dr. Fives and he showed, you know, Vincent Price how to play the organ for it. And, all, and it's all complete bullshit. It's total bullshit. Um, he had nothing to do with it. Uh, he had absolutely, he was, I asked everybody that worked on the, I mean, the main people that worked on it, if he was in any way the inspiration of the film, and they unequivocally said no. Um, and anyway, it's, it's a long story, I don't even want to go into it, but um, I just, I, I wish that rumor would just die. I really do. But, you know, I, I, I just think LeVay was, was such a con man and such a pathological liar um, that, that it's persisted. And it, it really bugs me um, because, of course, like, I mean, people, you know, I'll sometimes see articles where it says, oh, uh, Dr. Fives is a satanic hero. And I'm like, no, he's not. Like, he's he's a theological scholar. And when he's talking to Vincent Price at the end, he says, you know, God guided me or whatever. And he's anything but satanic. Like, I mean, he's an Epicurean. Oh, yeah. He lives well, but he's he's a gentleman. Um, I think if, if Anton LaVey had create, had, had some sort of female companion like that, I mean, she'd be a, a total object of lust, but there's this, this real, there's, he's, he's such a gentleman, he's such a cool character. Um, even well, he probably made those started. comments to, A, generate publicity for himself, and perhaps, maybe to a degree, you know, that was somebody that he would have wanted to be, somebody a bit more respectable than what he really was in real life, so... I think so, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, and here we are, and he worked, it worked. I mean, here I am like a schmuck talking about it, you know, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, but, but the engine was, and also the, the other thing that said that rumor was, you know, of course, where they worked on uh, Devil's Reign and he and, and he and Bob, like they, they enjoyed working, they weren't like buddies or anything once the movie wrapped, but they had, I think uh, Bob liked them and um, they, I think they had a good time. But the funniest thing Bob said about LeVay was, he goes, um, you know, Anton LeVay would wear these shiny black caps and these black sweaters and these black jackets and these, these dark navy blue pants and these shiny boot, black boots. You know, he looked a bit like a failed U-boat captain. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a perfect description, yeah. And Bob, um, Bob had this great way. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Now I was just going to ask about uh, the 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 company that that ended up publishing the book Bear Manor Media because I'd been hearing that name kind of pop up time and time again and and um, just went to their website for the first time as we were you know getting ready to interview you and I'm like all of a sudden I was like oh my gosh all these books that I've seen and in fact even a couple that I have in my own library I didn't realize were from Bear Manor Media they become kind of this publisher for getting books out there that might not be interested, you know, by the the big so-called, you know, names in the game that are getting these wonderful books out there and a lot of film history and, and they've got a lot of books on old-time radio giving that a lot of cool history 
to to these bits of our of our cinematic past, for example. Um, how did you end up, you know, getting a getting involved with with them and, and getting this book uh, published by them? How did that have come up? Oh, I just I just did I, I had done two other books with them. Um, my first one's called Names You Names You Never Remember with Faces You Never Forget, uh, which is about um, character actors. And um, the other is, as I said, interviews too, interviews too shocking to print. Um, did I? I don't know if I mixed those titles up. I hope I didn't. I'm sorry, I just got distracted for a second. Um, the first book is Names You Never Remember with Faces You Never Forget, which is interviews with character actors, and the second is interviews too shocking to print. Um, and and honestly, um, I just I found I found dealing with most publishers really really difficult and unpleasant. I can't lie. Um, I have to say it's been my dealings with, with Bear Manor have been fine, and that's why I, I did this book with them. Um, but uh, for years I've been working on a uh, the authorized biography of George Powell uh, that did The Time Machine and War of the Worlds and Destination yeah. Moon and Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe and all that. And, I mean, I, I completed my first draft of it in, like, 2006. But the dealings I've had, and I will not name names, but the dealings I've had with, with publishers on it were just nightmarish. And um, it was, and you'd think people would just say, okay, here's a well-researched, well-written book about, you know, the father of the most popular and profitable movie genre of the last 70 years. I mean, a guy who Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg and, and all these others directly cite as a major influence. Um, you know, whose films won God only knows how many Oscars, but it's been murder. It's absolute murder. Um, and I, I was, it was like, I can only hope that the Morlocks will eat the publishers that I dealt with. Um, and I mean, they were horrible human beings, horrible. Uh, I'm not naming names, but really insufferable. But, um, but, but Ben's been fine. I mean, it, the Dr. Fives was, I, I, I thought it suited Bear Manor because I just, I knew, I knew he wasn't going to give me grief. You know, the, the, the problem you have with some publishers is you take a book in and it's fine. And yet they'll say, okay, we want you to change this. 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 And it's, and it's kind of arbitrary. You know, it's like they have to put their dirty little fingers over things. But I knew Ben, uh, Ben Omar that Bear Manor would leave it alone. Um, also when, when the fives, when I first wrote the making of article on Dr. Fives, for Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Dick Clemenson was one of the easiest and most pleasant editors I've ever dealt with. And when I submitted it, he just immediately said, he said, look, he said, this article is as close to being finished and as close to perfect as anything I've ever had submitted to me. And I don't know if he says that to every writer, but it was, but he didn't monkey with what I wrote, and I really respect that. And I mean, I think the, the success of, of my Fives book and the the... And the fact that I haven't gotten a single correction on it. Not a single correction. No one has said I got, I mean, no one's been able to debate the facts with me. Um, and, uh, I, I think it, it tells people that I know what I'm doing. And, um, you would think that publishers would be more respectful of that, but they don't. I mean, it's kind of like, um, an illustrator friend of mine was on a panel decades ago with uh, a science fiction writer, and I can't remember who the writer was. It might have been Gordon Dixon or somebody. I don't remember who it was. Um, but they were talking about the way that publishers treat illustrators and the way that they treat writers. And um, and after it was over, the, the writer walked over to my friend. He goes, you know, he goes, I got to tell you, he goes, you know, they, the publishers beat us all up pretty badly. But the the writers, they take in the back room to beat up where no one sees, but the illustrators get clobbered in front of everybody. You know, um, <laughs> it's it's just, and I don't recommend it. I, I just do it as a hobby, basically. You know, it's 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 no way to make money, um, and uh, and I think I'm 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 very interested in self publishing. Self publishing seems the way to go uh, a lot of the time because um, I, I think it definitely helps. Uh, I, I think having control over what you're doing. And having economic control over what you're publishing is is very important. Um, but um, but yeah yeah it's uh, um, 
Sorry, I'm flipping through the book right now, and it's incredible. I mean, I, it looks like the bulk is the making of the movie, but the photos are amazing. Um, and the other articles in here, you've got some contributors. It's it's just a great resource, probably not just for the movie, but for, you know, movie making as well. Sure. sure no, I, I should give a shout-out to Sam Irvin uh, and David Taylor, who wrote a, a really, really good essay that's in there on the unfilmed Dr. Five's um, projects, of which there are many, um, and to Mark Forelli, who did a couple of little pieces at the end and who supplied some photos from the estate of John Jay, who was the on-set photographer on Five's. Um, no, no, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, I think um, one of the reasons I don't do more books than I do is because um, I, I, when I publish something, like I want it to have a lot of material that no one's seen. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to come up with as much material as I can that hasn't been republished and republished and republished. Um, and it's, it becomes almost, it's almost like an addiction. You know, you just get this itch to tell a story as completely as you can. And then, of course, there's a, there's a really, really good film historian named Preston Jones uh, that did a book on, among other things, a book on the making of Night of the Hunter called Heaven and Hell to Play With, which I recommend strongly. Uh, and Preston told me years ago, he goes, look, he said, the best way to research a film book is to publish it. And because the second you've published it, all of a sudden, all of the stuff will appear out of nowhere. <laughs> it's almost supernatural. And it's like, but a lot of the time it's because people will come to you and say, oh, well, I've got this, or I've got this, or I've got this, let's add this in, let's add this in, you know. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of, if you build it, they will come situation. But also, it's almost supernatural. You know, something will just, something will, stuff will just start to appear that you would have loved to have had. Um, which is why God made second edition, but, <laughs> but it's, um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, and I read these books. I love these kinds of books. So the reason I do the books like, you know, interviews through shocking the print and the five's companion is because, um, I want them done right. You know, I really want them done right. Uh, because there's, there's, there's a lot of bad writing, you know, um, there's a lot of sort of half-heartedly researched and, not particularly well written writing out there and um or that's too academic, you know, like I don't I don't really give a damn about Foucault or Derrida or post structuralism and I think that kind of stuff is a is a huge drag. I wanna find out why the the filmmakers made the choices they made. Um and as you said, no, I really appreciate what you said about it, you know, not just being about fives, but also about filmmaking. Um I wanna know why filmmakers and, and writers and actors and so forth make the choices that they make in the films that I love. And to me, it, it deeply enriches the experience of seeing the movie. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, but, like, I'll give you an example. Bob Seuss, uh, one of the things he loved to do was what he called wrong foot, the audience. Like, he would just throw these total curveballs at them. Uh, like, there's a scene in Dr. Fives where uh, it's it's right at the beginning, right before the bat murder, where they've just done their little their waltz across the dance floor. And then Volnavia goes downstairs in that white gown, and then magically she appears in the next shot. Mm-hmm. She's in that sort of Russian peasant outfit. <laughs> and, and it was literally just Bob saying, okay, I can do this in a movie, so I'm going to. It's just this little piece of almost like dream logic, and and I just love it. And but I I love that he said, you know, I like wrong putting the audience. I like throwing these 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 curveballs out, um, and knowing the just knowing the thinking behind the filmmakers' choices. Like it, it um, I mean, I had seen the movie so many times before I really started researching it in earnest, and um, it it's uh, it's it's made it so much more enjoyable for me. And I think it's a movie that the more you watch, the more you find and um, get out of it. And with this book as a, pardon the pun, companion, <laughs> it's uh, they really go. It, it's a wonderful thing to have if, if you like the movie. Uh, where can folks get the book? Is uh, Amazon the best, or do you have? Uh, oh, I would say okay. Um, well, if anybody wants to order it directly from me, look me up on Facebook or or Instagram. Um, I, I do sell copies, but. Um, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon UK. 
Uh, you can get it directly from Bear Manor Media. Uh, Monsters in Motion has been selling it. It's a, a dealer out here in, in California. Um, I, I keep seeing it pop up. So it, it's around. It's on eight books. It's on eBay. Uh, there's there's plenty of places. So so buy it already. Yeah, I do want to ask you one more question because you mentioned the unfilmed sure. Dr. Fives and I, you know, every once in a while I read something about a new movie and I, I think the most recent thing I saw that perhaps it was going to be rebooted with Malcolm McDowell. Do you know anything? Do you think there will ever be another Fives in uh, movies or TV? I have a feeling there will be, but I um, I have a feeling there will be. I have a feeling um the uh there were it was interesting there were so many attempts in the seventies to get it going again uh there was one script called Fives Resurrectus. um there was one uh, I think Bob was working on one at some point um and I think they were trying to make Fives was kind of becoming more of a good guy, you know it was a case of of this. Here you have a, a you know this crazed killer that the audience loves and sympathizes with, which I think is one of the one of the most interesting things about the about the first film. Um, you know, it could have been very morally queasy, but they make it work and they really make it work effortlessly. Um, but I think they kind of wanted to make Fives kind of nicer and have just sort of have him against sort of. Um, more malicious characters, sort of like, you know, characters sort of like Biderbeck in Five Rises Again or worse. Uh, but for whatever reason, they, they didn't work out. I think part of it was in the 70s that uh, that style of horror film was falling badly out of vogue, mm-hmm. really badly out of vogue. And I think Gore was, was gradually starting to take over and more intense uh, kinds of horror. Um, they, it, was, it was becoming kind of... A, AIP was just making sort of cheaper and sillier and more graphic uh, horror movies by that point. Um, interestingly, you know, it just stuns me. I'm digressing here, but uh, Dr. Fives was on a double bill in England. There's even posters for it uh, with the incredible two-headed transplant. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but, I mean, it's it's an atrocity. I mean, even compared to... Okay, so there's the, the two AIP doubleheaders. You know, there's Incredible Two-Headed Transplant and The Thing with Two Heads. And The Thing with Two Heads is the one with Rosie Greer and Ray Land, which is a ton of fun. It's just ridiculous fun. The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant is just like, it's like a train wreck. It's horrible. And it's got all this stuff that you would think would be wonderful. Oh, great, Bruce Dern and... You know, uh, uh, this, this two-headed maniac and, and, and Pat Priest from the Munsters and Barry Kroger and all this stuff and Casey Kasem. And it's just, it's awful. It's just awful. I mean, the fact that AIP would pair those two shows a, a real, really distinct lack of judgment. Also, they, they, they just didn't handle the second one right. Uh, the one sheet art to it stinks. Uh, the various ads to it weren't very good. The trailer's great. Um, but again, I think recutting it was a mistake, and I, I think that um, the way they released it was was not wise. And I think after that, they sort of they sort of abandoned. It. They tried, but they they just couldn't get anything going. But I, I think sooner or later he'll be back. He's deathless. Great. Well, congratulations again on the book and the Rondo nomination. I guess we should remind everyone. Uh, We'll get this episode posted right away, but nominations are due by midnight, April 21st, so we've got just about a week. Um, you want to tell Justin, uh, tell people how they can vote? Um, I uh, visit the Rondo Awards website and the, uh, uh, look, look up the ballots, and they will give you an email address to cut and paste and send it to. Um, it's uh, run by a guy named David Colton. Uh, and his uh, email address, as I recall, is Terraco, T-A-R-A-C-O, at AOL.com, I, I believe. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I would appreciate any votes. I'd, I'd love to finally get one of those little Rondo Houghton statuettes. Yeah. Um, and but, we always um, tell people, uh, in, in case they're intimidated by the ballot, that don't have to vote for everything. You can go in and simply vote for the Dr. Fives Companion by Justin Humphreys. And while you're there, I'll have to say vote for ClassicHorrors.club as your favorite website or blog. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so uh, any, much, any, Justin. Yeah. Uh, it's it's we, been a, it's been a great a pleasure. We haven't done a proper episode on fives, but maybe we will in the future. We usually talk about two or three movies and compare and contrast and talk about the years and the environment of when they came out. So if we get around to five, we'd love to have you back. Oh, I'd be delighted. Absolutely delighted. I, um, I'm just, frankly, I'm just, I'm really, really happy that so many people have enjoyed and embraced the book. And uh, the response to it has been so overwhelmingly positive. Uh, it, it's meant a lot to me. And um, I'm just that I, 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 again, I was, I think when you write something like this, or when you love movies like this, you'll sort of, you'll feel like you're one of the maybe 10 people on the planet that really, really love them. And all of a sudden you send out this, uh, this a book like this as a kind of beacon and they all come out of the woodwork. And uh, it, it's been extraordinary. Um, I've had people order copies from Canada, from Australia and England and all over. It's 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 really wonderful. Oh, that's I think that's the one positive. Well deserved. Yeah, I think that's the one thing of social media is that we've been able to connect with with uh, as as Derek over at Monster Kid Radio says our tribe. You know, there's there's the days of us being isolated and and those are gone. And now we can connect and and something like Rondo Awards is always kind of like a, a checklist of what came out in the last year that you missed, what movies came out that <laughs> you missed. And and if you even if you you know haven't read the book and 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 uh you know the time the awards come along, it's something to to add to your wish list, I think certainly. I know it's been added to mine. And uh, in fact I'll admit I don't have it in my possession yet. It is on my Amazon wish list and it's getting ordered tomorrow. Once payday hits I'm getting it, and it'll hopefully be here <laughs> by midweek. So, uh, well, don't sweat it. I'm kind of. I don't. Don't sweat it. I was going to say I, I'm kind of slow about getting these things myself. Like actually, honestly, the, the the movie book that I'm most looking forward to right now is um, McPadden's um, Teen Movie Hell, but the '70s and '80s teen movies uh, oh, and wow. the dumb teen comedies. And from everything I've seen that he's been posting about, it looks hilarious. So. Um, I think it, it looks like to be a very, very funny book. But, but yeah, the um, there will be – by the way, I should add, there will be a hardcover edition of Dr. Fibes. Um, I'm working on that right now. It's going to have some extra photos and stuff at the end. Um, but um, I'm not sure of a release date. It will be out sometime this year. It's just putting books together like this is like – it's like building a house or making a movie. You know, so it, it kind of comes in its own good time. But uh, well, you there know, is one. Say, um, I'd loan Richard my book, but he's not very good about giving things back. But Richard, you can have this. I'm going to be getting a hardcover when it comes out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, just because it took me a few years to get uh, to get the the uh, Willard remake back to you, let's let's not bring that up. So. <laughs> well, I think that's no. That's why. Look, look. If you want, if you want to keep something, don't loan it out. That's that's the main thing. I I had a. Um, a high school English teacher who I adored. She was a great lady. She's since passed on. But she borrowed my copy of Ray Bradbury's Death is a Lonely Business when I was a senior in high school, and I never saw it again. You know, so when even our respected elder figures are bad about <laughs> returning stuff, it's like, don't, don't look. It's funny. I have a friend I um I borrow stuff from, borrow DVDs and books from occasionally, and he goes, he's like, your, your lending credit's good. Your lending credit's good. Like, always return things. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, be careful of that or Dr. Fives will get you. Um, he'll, he'll he'll commit some sort of horrible murder involving DVDs or records. By the way, I wanted to say this. I, a friend of mine has joked with me for years about, he's like, yeah, he's like we should do a, a modern Dr. Fives where Dr. Fives' neighborhood is being gentrified by hipsters. And he's murdering hipsters in various styles. Like there's one where he's ki- he, he kills them with with mustache wax or something. And there's a, a hipster there's a, and there's a hipster audio file that he presses into like a hundred and eighty degree hundred eighty gram vinyl uh, record and uh, just stuff like that. And I thought, oh my god, like this is the movie. Or one of them has you know he kills with one of those giant you know those giant old fashioned bicycles that the hipsters uh ride and I thought that's wonderful like, god why hasn't somebody done that um, yeah, see, he's timeless uh, so he, we could bring him back anytime but uh, dr fives goes to williamsburg brooklyn i'd i'd pay money <laughs> to see that 
Yeah, thank you. This has been a real pleasure. I'm, I'm just, as I said, I'm happy the book got to the right people, and uh, I'd, I'd be delighted to come back anytime. Great, great. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Rich, thank you again. Thank and, you. And uh, we'll go ahead and call this meeting to a close. See you next time. Take care now.